I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. So we have a guest with us today who is, uh, full disclosure, somebody I worked with for many years. Uh, his name is Charles Mendede. He's a writer at The Stranger and also a filmmaker. And I'm very excited to have him here because when I first moved to Seattle about 20 years ago, I started picking up The Stranger and I would read Charles. And he was the first economics writer, I think, who I really started following and, and who helped me sort of learn about how these things work because he he's very talented at connecting economics to real world issues. And so I've wanted to have him on for a long time. So uh, I'm excited to have him here. Can you please uh, give your name and your title? Well, I'm Charles Tundarai Mudede. I'm the associate of The Stranger and I teach at Cornish College. And then, uh, and also I, uh, I've, I'm a director. I direct films and I've written films, so I'm a filmmaker. I wanted to talk to you because you've been doing this for a relatively long time in the media. How long have you been writing uh, about economic issues? My father was an economist, mm-hmm. and he was uh, he worked with the IMF back in the nineteen late nineteen seventies. And when I was a kid, he would show me things that were sort of like explain things that were happening in the economy at that time in Zimbabwe. He, he would receive this incredible document called the World Bank estimates for global growth and I loved it <laughs> and it was the weirdest thing and he had his own bar we lived in a house and he had his own bar and he would sit there um, and tell me things about what stocks were doing and which mm-hmm. stocks to pay attention to because he was working for the government at the time he would say like oh no this stock you know this stock's gonna explode tomorrow and I said why and he said oh because the government's given this contract to this particular company and they're gonna announce it tomorrow he would tell me this and later on I realized that he never profited it from it he <laughs> he just knew that's like you, you you know usually in our age you just like oh you you know you watched Wall Street you yeah, know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you see what happened to Martin Sheen yeah and you know he got in <laughs> trouble for that sort of thing yeah and the I insider grew, trading yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right but I, my dad was in that situation all the time and I began my my long interest in the background of our lives which I think is how money and uh, wealth um, is distributed and how long have you been writing about e- economics it was first of all because I was interested in Marxism in my early uh, 30s, and but then I found Marxism inadequate for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons. I'm not, I understand the critique, but I found it incomplete. And so when my dad, weirdly enough, passed away, mm-hmm. um, I found a lot of his papers and I started reading them, and then I it's one of those things where it's sort of it's super edible like once he's past, you know like, like I finally decided that I could become my dad uh-huh. you know what I mean like that he's gone and so I, I took on reading economics mm-hmm. around and he passed away in 2010 and I, I just suddenly became that that moment I became interested not so much in Marxism but I, I became interested in what my father was taught mm-hmm. I became interested in um, the other voices they call them hetero, heterodox economics mm-hmm. so there's this orthodox economics Economics, which I sort of read, and then I realized that there was this other branch called heterodox economics, which sort of challenged these common concepts about what drives an economy and so forth and so on. That's when I started writing a little more, I think, a little more deeply about the subject. Yeah, but you've uh, that's the but you've always been writing about economic power, and yes. that's always been something that has been, I think, central to 
yeah, central to your work, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it's never escaped. And that's, you know, you know, the one thing is it was always there in, in my life in, mm. a, in a strange way. And so it wasn't hard for me to, to connect ideas that were sort of taught in colleges and so on and so on to something like watching Alien. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and you know, and, and it was like it's like it was 1979, and uh, I didn't see that film at that time because they wouldn't let me, and I was 14 years old. <laughs> but if you watched Alien, it was really, and I saw it about three years later. But when you watched it, it was really about class conflict. Yeah, there were workers. There were workers yeah. on the spaceship, yeah. and they had problems with the contract, and there were issues of bonuses. If you watched this, you saw like you know what I mean. It was really marvelous, and I thought. My gosh, Alien actually is um, saves the crisis. Uh-huh. I mean, the alien is not actually the enemy. The, al- the alien is like, you think you have problems about pay w- wages? <laughs> no, I'm coming in to eat you. And therefore, all of that is over. Uh-huh. And nobody ever talks about, well... What about the bonus uh-huh. <laughs> after the alien? <laughs> so the alien is protecting the, uh, the, 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 well, the You know, you could ask, and I thought it was really curious that you can see the moment mm-hmm. that suddenly, I mean, and the alien is, of course, indifferent. Mm-hmm. And was, my question was, was you watch that? You're like, that wasn't really in Star Wars, and that wasn't, you know, it's a little bit of it in Blade Runner, but in Alien, it was it stood out yeah. that, you know, that two characters in the film, one black, one white, were clearly working class. Yeah. And they had gripes about their contract. And so I, I did, I, I grew up with that thing like, oh, so this is a big part of our lives. And that's where it sort of stems from, not from reading Marx, but watching Alien. Yeah. And you've incorporated that in your film criticism for as long as I've yes, been reading that's, you. That's, yes. And to me, it feels like a lot of the rest of the American mainstream media is catching up to you in terms of that. Like, it's not so bizarre for me to go to a movie website and see someone talk about colonialism in the latest Thor movie, which was directed by an indigenous person. And so do you think that the the way that the media has covered economic issues has changed in the time since you've started? Absolutely. Do you know, I watched a movie. Okay, I rewatched it. It was uh, a a John uh, Houston film. I don't know why I want to say Sweet 16, but it's not. It's called, uh, oh, uh, uh, you know, Pretty in Pink. And, you know, and I'm watching this film mm-hmm. and, and, and John Huston was like the last of the, of the real like Hollywood figures who just before. Hughes. Re- Hughes. 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 <laughs> Sorry. What was I saying? You were saying John Hughes, Pretty in Pink. Uh, yeah, Hughes. John Hughes. <laughs> I was mispronouncing his name. But, you know, John Hughes had in his films a real class consciousness. Mm-hmm. If it, It's hard to tell people like, are you kidding me? And I said, no, actually watch Pretty in Pink. Uh-huh. Right? It has, it, it's again, um, really structures uh, the relationships around class. Yeah. People who have money, people who don't have money, and the way the poor people live, and so on and so on. But it, the weirdest thing ever, I was watching it, and the professor or the teacher in high school opens with a discussion about the New Deal. Mm-hmm. and starts to talk about what happened and why the New Deal happened. And the kids are like fast asleep. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow. You know what I mean? We're not. And this is a movie made in the 80s. In the 80s, yeah. right? Yeah. And you're just like, no, we know this. What, what happened for us to lose, I mean, at that level of popular culture, to lose that, that was ironic that the kids thought this was unimportant. Uh-huh. And you're watching it, and it's the teachers saying the New Deal and so on and so on. When the New Deal, what the New Deal was, it made the, um, the working class into the middle class. 
Mm-hmm. And so you're watching this film about somebody who's, who's sinking from the middle class, right, with somebody who's rising above the middle class, and, mm-hmm. and both are trying to find a connection. You may say, I'm over-reading it, but trust me. <laughs> you just look at that, and my question is, well, why did we have a class? What happened to our class consciousness mm-hmm. in the USA? But it was not absent. It was there, and it was gone. And so anyway, so to me, it was a way to interpret um, the art world and films and so forth and so on. But yeah. It seems like there's also been a class conscious, like there's been a reawakening of class in yes. the media. Partly, I think there's been a fair amount of organizing in newsrooms around the country, BuzzFeed and, yes. and, uh, yes. and Vox and locally Crosscut has, you know, and um, does it feel to you like other people are catching up to you in, in terms of uh, talking yeah. about these issues? Well, it's really sad right now because we still believe for the most part in the USA, that the bulk of us are in the middle class, mm-hmm. right? And we've been told this for the most part. You can flip a hamburger. I'm sorry to say it's not, it's not wrong. I, I always hate that expression, but you know what I mean? You yeah, can you can, yeah. you can flip it. Well, that's because that is a class-loaded that, term. That's a class-loaded term. You, you know what I mean? But, that's what they, but I don't mean that in that sense. I mean, literally, you have to, you know what I mean? Like, you're working. You can stack bricks. You can do all these other things and so on and so on. And you can do it for something like $25,000 a year, mm-hmm. right, if you're lucky. Sometimes it's 18000 And somebody who's earning $250,000 is considered to be in the same class as you are in the mm-hmm. U.S. So the U.S. has this doesn't have really a class structure. It has this massive idea of the middle class, and anybody can be a part of it. All that's required is that you show up for work, mm-hmm. and you're in the middle class. And that's not the the notion. And you have to challenge people about this. I mean, mm-hmm. this, if you don't do that, then you don't explain a lot of things like homelessness and so forth and so on. Um, for me, it's, it's, it became like, yes, I started doing this and I started thinking about these problems. But that issue is like, first of all, the universal class does not really exist. There's still class sections and, mm-hmm. and they're also historically defined. But there's also something else that, that drove me nuts. Okay, I want to tell you a story. I have to tell you a story. There was a, a thing when I went to Vancouver, BC. I was just hanging out there, um, writing something. And I was going down uh, the streets, downtown Robeson, um, and so on and so on. And uh, I noticed all the, the shops were closed. In fact, I was looking for a Hungarian restaurant where they sold schnitzel that I loved. <laughs> a schnitzel, the best schnitzel ever. Okay. Well, done right. Uh-huh. Seattle has no schnitzel joints. Okay. And so I, I went there. I was looking for this place. Where is this? Where's my schnitzel? And I realized that it was the place was gone. And it, but it was all boarded up. The whole street was boarded up. And the first thing I thought was, oh, there's an economic catastrophe. Mm-hmm. I did not know Vancouver was in a recession. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a better, like, maybe social services, so it doesn't hurt so bad or something like that. I did not know. Like, and I wrote to a friend there, an architectural critic, and I said, are you in a recession? Why is Granville and so much of Robeson boarded up? Oh, and he said, oh, nobody can afford to open stores there. And I was like, but isn't it better to have a person in the store than not there? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you make, you still make money? He says, no, 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 you can't. And I said, what's, what's, what's happened? He says, all the spaces are owned by global capitalists mm-hmm. and they don't care about who goes into those businesses. And uh, I realized I went to look at what's going on in, 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 in economics in general, and I discovered, or at least I became aware of this thing where if you have a global capitalist system, um, the rich are from all over the world. And if you're in a city, 
right? And you have the rich people. At least the rich people are just in your neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? But if you suddenly open up your, your capital flows, uh, they come from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and they're always looking for for investments and places to park money and stuff like that. And that that began that launched me into a new direction in terms of like looking at finance mm-hmm. and what is finance and what does it do, you know. And I found it's it's effects disruptive, universally. And so, you know what I mean? It's like I I got into that into that track of thinking. Yeah, you were one of the first people to turn my attention to that global investors buying real estate in in Vancouver and just sitting on it and just leaving it empty and and yes. sitting on it. And so there were whole neighborhoods in Vancouver that were ghost towns, investment ghost towns. Yes. Uh, since real estate is an investment now. Was that story being covered in Vancouver? The, there was a lot of resistance to that particular reading of the situation in Vancouver. I had to uh investigate uh-huh. like what what is it and you, you you'd go on to the economics department for the province right mm-hmm. the british columbia province and they would say no there's nothing going on they constituted a, a small amount of investment mm-hmm. in in the market the issue is uh not so much where the money came from money comes from all over the world mm-hmm. it can come from true china but it also can come from south america if you're in um uh, Miami, and you know, and it also comes from Africa. The biggest, one of the biggest export of, of of surplus cash is actually Africa, and a lot of people don't realize that. But you know, what it is is that there's no investments in Africa that that can match, say, an investment in Europe. So you actually move your money to to the, to America to make sure that it, it can uh, increase. There's this whole thing that you you just start to see, and you realize that oh my gosh. Yes, we are in trouble. I don't want to get into the details of it, but it's like, no, it's a really difficult thing to explain mm-hmm. because it is complicated. Okay, okay, you watch that movie, that wonderful movie. I thought it was very well done, actually. The one called The Big Short. Yeah. I and mean, if you read the book, I actually thought they, that, that they did a great job of capturing the essence of that book. Yeah, Lewis but is a great explainer, and the movie did that as Did well. that so well. Yeah. But still, it was really like they had to make leaps yeah. to explain these kinds of like investment vehicles, how they work, because they're like, no, it's not about just, you know, me buying a product. It's about the person behind me who says, you're going to buy a product. And the person behind that person say, that person will buy a product. And everybody like betting on the fact of yeah. this. And it becomes really Baroque, yeah. right? And it's and you may think like, oh, okay, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Because it is, yeah. And it's just like, no, that's what it is. And so you have to hesitate. You're always careful. Like, I don't want to make you snore about this. Because, yes, it is crazy and it is complicated but the essence is to say like okay you say something like quantitative eating easing right mm-hmm. you come into quantitative easing and you say to somebody well what is quantitative easing you say, oh well the government's buying like bonds back from people <laughs> b- and giving them cash and then again the, and then they're going what, what is a bond what are, well the government bonds and them security and you're like oh my god you've lost everybody but what you say is no quite simply you have to narrow it the government is printing money in a fancy way. Right. You know what I mean? You have to come out with that. That's what's going on. Yeah. They're printing cash, and the cash is going to the rich. And I'm just sorry. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And so you always have to, like, be careful, like, when you explain this stuff, because you know how the, the maze you're entering, and there are others who will attack you when you write and say, like, oh, you don't know exactly, well, a CDO does this, this, and that. And I'm like, uh-huh. okay, 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 I get it, I get it. But what is it, at the end of the day, what is it you're doing? 
what is it you want? You're, so you're <laughs> distilling down the the distilling it down to an action, which is journalism. Action. Yes, it's, yes. You're explaining it using a metaphor. Yes, that works, and it's all metaphors are imperfect, but you can still get there. No, yeah. they, they have these things called CDOs, right? Yeah. Uh, collateral, uh, my gosh, I gotta remember all this stuff. <laughs> um, derivatives uh, that are called CDOs. I'm just going to call them that. I'm sorry, you have to go and look it up, what CDOs means, because I'm just not going to pop it up in my hand right now. But they're complicated, mm -hmm. and they were actually a part of the big short, right? Yes. And you can go and read them, and you can say, like, oh, what it is is that it's an insurance policy. If I uh, am paying off a debt, right, mm -hmm. the insurance policy says if I stop paying off this debt, that it'll ensure that I still get my money from the debt. Mm -hmm. That simple. It's like yes. quite similar, like if I buy a car and I stop paying for the car, and somebody says, okay, somebody sold me an insurance policy that says, okay, I'm going to give you, uh, we're going to pay you back because this person did not commit to the payment scheme. Now, that sounds normal? No, it gets worse, uh -huh. right? It gets crazy. What is a CDO? What is a, what is a credit uh, default swap, right? That's what they call it, credit default swap. What is it that they're doing when, they, when, they, when you buy an insurance policy on the person paying a debt? No, it's... It's not like insurance. If I buy health insurance, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like I'm hoping I don't get sick, actually, right? Right. I'm hoping I'm gonna be well, humping around, right? You know, that sort of stuff. And I'm buying it with the hope that it doesn't. I don't have to use it. Yeah. Right. Right. A credit default swap, which are one of the what uh, the big investor called the the weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. in terms of finance. Um, the big investor, the one who owns billions and dollars. What's his name? Come on. Well, a Beth Buffett called Warren that. Buffett, yeah. Warren Buffett yeah. called that. If you, if you look at what, what it says, right, what, it, what you do with the credit default swap is you say, I buy insurance on Paul Constant, uh -huh. <laughs> his health insurance policy. Uh -huh. I say, if Paul, I'm hoping I see Paul Constant croaks. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or at least get hit by a bus. <laughs> a bus or something. Yeah. And that's what, and I was like, what? This is, <laughs> this is what this thing is? You can buy insurance policies? On somebody, so on somebody, failing. yeah, somebody's failing yeah. to make it a payment or to live. This is not an insurance policy. This is this is a bet. This is a bunch of chips you're placing. I'm, I'm like, you know, and, and that's the system was built on that. And it's hard to tell people. It's really difficult to say this because you end up like, oh my god, it's a, it's crazy. It's crazier than you could ever imagine. One of the things I remember that you did that I thought was a. a really valuable public service was you had a series of, I guess I would call them book clubs, but I think you called them seminars on, uh, on Capitol uh, yeah. when, when Piketty's book came out. And I went to one or two and people were very receptive. And I think there were people who hadn't thought about this before and you were very good at explaining it to them. Is what you're doing explaining things to people who, who've never thought about it before? When you're doing journalism, are you a teacher? Are you an explainer? Are you a storyteller? What are you, what are you I'm, thinking? I'm, I'm all of those, I, uh -huh. and I hope I am. I spent time reading Thomas Piketty's, uh, the pronunciation's always kind of screwy, yeah. but uh, um, a book, uh, Capital of the 21st Century, and it was a long book. It was like a revolution yeah. in economics. And it was hard to tell people why it was so important that he had written this book. First of all, he came out of MIT. I don't want to get into the long stuff, but he came out of MIT, and he had a mathematical background. And some of us who don't have mathematical backgrounds but knew that the system was, like, totally bizarre could never say, say what he said with the confidence that he could say it. 
you know what I mean? And but he wrote this really excellent. And he only had a few formulas. You could all you need is a is basic algebra, mm-hmm. and you're not 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 this kind of you know some fantastic crazy stuff. But it was really important because his book became a bestseller, yeah. and a lot of people were not going to finish it. And it was important just to say, well, what does it mean that capital grows faster than than normal wealth? That's the essential premise of that book was trying to explain that it's all this variations um, or it's all of its insights, all of its passages. It, it, it's a book that walks in to the same room in different directions. Mm-hmm. It can walk in through like the study of Jane Austen. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. His, his, his discussion of Jane Austen and his discussion of Balzac, but he can also walk it through into the same into the same point through say the the protest that happened in South Africa, where like over a hundred miners or were, were slaughtered by um, policemen, mm-hmm. right while they were protesting for high wages. In fact, he opened the book that way, but it was suddenly like, oh my goodness, here is this book, and here is what it means. And we can finally talk. Us who have been outside, standing on the on the sidelines, because the profession became so mathematical. He was just this, like you know, Jesus walking on water, right? <laughs> You're just like, oh my God, thank you. And you could suddenly join him and say, okay, right? That's the argument. So, but I, to me, that was really important, and it shook up the confidence that people had. That's kind of not a confidence. The certain. The, the the idea that people knew more than they did, and those people who did know more were actually in charge, and and so forth and so on, and therefore whatever you felt about the economy, personally, those those instincts that you had, such as like, oh, I'm being paid a little a little too much, a little too little, right? <laughs> right. That I mean, I'm not being paid enough. Yeah. But you know. Suddenly, there was someone in the game with the credentials to say, "Yes, this is why you feel that way, and it's true. Yeah. It's, you're not you're not in a state of uh, of denial. Yeah. You really are underpaid, and you really are in in terms of what he sort of the way he read the situation. You really are worse off than you were." 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, and that was something that I think I started to realize when I was at one of your groups talking about the book and has become more evident over the years. But I think that Piketty really started or Piketty started the realization for me was that it's all the same money. Yes. You know, that the money that the 0.1% has came from uh, from the working class and the middle class and all that. And it's the same pool. It's not a different, distinct... Uh, yeah. uh, you know, that was a foundational thing. That was a foundational discovery, I think. Do you know, or statement. I, I, I have to say, one of the most startling things t- to me when I was reading that book, and I remember it just being, you know, you, I read in the mornings, right? Mm-hmm. And I had to go out and have a cigarette because mm-hmm. I couldn't, I was so stunned. You know what I mean? I, I had to walk out and I look at the dawn and I was like, this is stunning to me. What he said was that there was the idea that, that capitalism was making life better for everybody, mm-hmm. right? And he said that notion is actually quite recent. There wasn't that idea in the 19th century. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that. There wasn't this, if you look at the poor in Europe and in England, there was, they had no sense of like progress. It was not available to them. There was, you know, wages were terrible. I mean, they had to fight to end, you know, to, to cut down um, work hours. But there was no sense that it just gave you mm-hmm. something, that it made life better automatically. And what he said was that uh, all of that 
came about after the, the middle class in the USA, the middle class in Europe, and also, in a sense, the middle class in Japan in advanced capitalist societies. It came about because a catastrophic economic crash or a catastrophic economic um, experience, which is 1929 and the depression that followed, yeah. and two major world wars. Mm-hmm. And he said that that's when they were shaken. That's when the upper class was really, you know, we finally could say, to hell with this. Mm-hmm. You are going to, no more of this 19th century <laughs> waiting for, right? Yeah. Waiting for the, for, the, for the wealth to accumulate and then it's going to fall to us. Enough of that. And the middle class in the USA emerged from that. Yeah. And it's hard to tell people that, no, you did not exist before World War II. Yeah. That it just is just not there. And, the, and this is stunning. To, and I thought about it, I was like, Holy moly! Right? You know what I mean? You there have were no to, suburbs. There in, were no in, suburbs. In, yeah. yeah, we're dealing with boomers right now, and they come from that generation. And it's hard to tell them that that was a New Deal construction. It was a a bunch of socialist policies mm-hmm. in terms of home ownership and all this stuff that were kicked in in the 1930s and were and were settled by the 1950s. And it's hard the numbers and the graph to make that apparent to me. I did not see them until I read that book. Yeah. And so it was a revolution in my, in my thinking. When I was at the paper, I wrote about a lot of economic issues, and I, I was probably not prepared to write about them uh, mentally. I've learned a lot in the time since then, and I learned as I was writing about them, which was a, a useful experience. Do you have any ideas about what a journalist's responsibility is as they write about the economy? No, no. You know, there's two institutions right now two public institutions that define how we understand the economy. And one is academic, and the other one is journalist or journalistic. And um, and a lot of people don't understand. Don't, what they don't get is, is, uh, is that usually journalists um, will um, process the stuff that the, that's coming out of the colleges, out of the um, universities, mm-hmm. and they'll disseminate that information as... Um, you know, in in one way or another, and you're thinking that it's just a journalist just talking about a problem or trying to solve a, or trying to throw a light on a situation. But no, actually, um, and this comes from my Keynesian background because he's right. We <laughs> we're heavily influenced by um, by research and studies that are done at universities and by think tanks and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. I should say think tanks come into play as well, but. Uh, if you are talking about something like, for example, I mean, you always get to somebody who will say something like, for example, today there was a big issue of like the economy, the, the repo market is kind of in a funny situation. And they'll say this. They'll, they'll write, you know, right now, you know, there's a repo situation that happened. Right? The repurchase issue, what happened is the, the, the feds are now buying all this paper from um, banks because uh-huh. The repo market. I don't want to get into the repo market. It's nuts. Uh-huh. People don't want to hear about it, but it affects your life. Yeah. The fact is, the f- the government is buying up debt from um, from banks so that they have enough cash, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you and you can come and well, guess what? Guess what you see in that little thing. Some will say, "Oh, well, why is there suddenly no cash in this?" in this banking sector, and they say, oh, because the government, you'll see this in newspaper after newspaper, Bloomsburg, New York Times, everywhere, you'll see it, and they'll say, oh, it's because. They won't even say they agree with it or not. They say, oh, the experts say that, right? Right, yeah. 
they'll say the experts say, oh, it's because uh, there are these capital requirements on banks, and they they have the cash, but they can't spend it. Mm-hmm. And so it's the government that's hindering them. And they'll disseminate this. Mm-hmm. And you'll read it in the Washington Post. You'll, I mean, you'll read it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And nobody's saying, you know, nobody questions it. They'll just repeat it. They re- regurgitate the regurgitate experts. Regurgitate yeah. the experts. Yeah. Right, who said this? Yeah. The repo markets. You know, the repo markets. I wanted to say, I just would love to explain this, but <laughs> you, you, what it is is basically overnight lending. Uh-huh. And you'd wonder, like, they didn't have cash for a short time? Isn't that alarming? And they say, no, well, just because of this. And where did that come from? It came from some guy in universities. Mm-hmm. Some, a couple of researchers wrote a paper mm-hmm. and showed a capital requirement. Who knows what capital requirements are? Who knows this? Yeah. yeah, It takes forever to know this, right? Yeah. And it gets down to the journalist, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the banks don't have enough money because their cashes are tied up because the government imposed these rules on them and so forth and so on. And that's what you read. Yeah. That's what you read. You read the And it sounds like it's like the answer yeah. to a lot of people because, you know, because this whole institutional framework between journalists and academics sounds solid. Right. Right? Research has been done. But nobody, and I've been surprised, I've been looking at this development, and I finally said, nobody's questioned this issue of capital requirements. Capital requirements just simply means that a bank needs enough money in case, you know, trouble comes along. Yeah, they have to right. pay. Like, we live in a world with no problems. <laughs> oh, so you want to get rid of capital. You don't want to, you have to think that you don't need money because, you know, day by day, nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, of course, yeah. you need a little cash on the side just in case. This is all they're saying, but they don't say it that way. They, they bring up all these fancy words, capital requirements, everybody goes to sleep, and nobody yeah. knows that this is what's going on. And it's a job of journalism. Mm-hmm. To me, the job of me as a journalist is to attack and say, don't be gassed by these kinds of descriptions. It's, it's, it's the job of journalism to break down what is being said and present it to the public so that they have information that is actually, you know, that, that they can understand yeah. and they can use. Because all I'm saying is, as a journalist, is that I have the time to read this stuff. Mm-hmm. I have the time to go and call the professor. I have the time, all, all, you know, that's what I'm doing. And, yeah. I, but, and I'm going to give you, and you have to trust me, the information that you can, it's actually usable, actionable information. Yeah. But what, what you're seeing right now when you say like, oh, governments are not, are not in the way of banking investments and so forth, or banking liquidity, oh my gosh. <laughs> and you don't understand it. That's ruined your life. Yeah. That kind of thinking is going to make your life worse. Yeah. What's what's going to happen, Charles? I mean, like, personally, I feel a little better about the way that economic issues have been covered. Maybe that's because we're, you know, in a yeah. generation now that's been burned by the big short and so on. But do you feel optimistic about the way that things are going with the economy and with the media? Yes. You know, and I have to say, as a writer, the, the pieces that seem to get lots of readers are the ones that involve alternative interpretations mm-hmm. or what we call heterodox. I'm, sad, I'm sad to, to say that it's called heterodox interpretations mm-hmm. of the state of the economy. I think that people realize that the, that the 2008 sort of like exploded this confidence in what they call the, <laughs> I hate to use this, there's this whole theory about markets being efficient. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah, that, and that, and that, that. that you keep government stay away 
prices will then solve themselves and so forth and so on. And they taught that for about 40 years, yeah. right, without any interruption or a real challenge. And a lot of people who said stuff that was interesting, they were just forgotten. But, you know, they called the last crisis a Minsky moment, mm -hmm. and I'm a big fan of Hyman Minsky, an American economist who was just completely ignored. I mean, he had a great career, pretty decent life, Taught in you know pretty good colleges and so, but his works were ignored. But now they called 2008 a Minsky moment, mm -hmm. and and suddenly for a lot of people like who's Minsky? <laughs> like who, uh -huh. who, why did anybody talk about Minsky before the crisis? And so I think that we live in an age where the academies are now realizing that that the students want to know more about other ideas about economics. I've noticed this from different um, websites mm -hmm. that are where students are pushing greater diversity in interpretations. If the academies start to offer uh, research that counters the standard stories, and then journalists will be then have the tools to interpret. Mm -hmm. And I think that we live in an age where that is definitely, that's a reality. To me, oh, it's, it's, it's something that can be realized. Mm -hmm. I'm optimistic about better economic information arriving at people's um, inboxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why do you do this work? My dad mm -hmm. was an economist, mm -hmm. and I am a writer, but my son is an economist. Oh. So there's a gene somewhere on there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I was not very like I didn't ever I never talked about economics with my son, but I always feel like economics is is, is a moral science, uh -huh. and uh, and I'm fascinated with um, the issue of like uh, 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 how do we construct our relationships socially, mm -hmm. right? And so to me, that has been my my project. I don't I don't see myself as my, my, my father could have called himself an economist, and my, my son is more mathematically minded. I think he's even more like mainstream economics, but I find myself to be much more a moral philosopher. Mm -hmm. And so was Adam Smith, the, the, the person who founded economics um, with Wealth of Nations, but his, his first book was uh, a, a Theory of Moral Sentiment. That to me is his more important book. But it's just, it's like I wanna know how we as humans can live can improve the way we live. That's, if I'm, I'm putting this correctly. Yeah. I want us to find out how we can be better humans. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's it. So it's, it, is, it is a philosophical um, project for me. That's wonderful. Thank you. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>